This morning we are studying in the book of James. We're going to be in the second chapter of James. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible, we've got them in the pews in front of you. Don't get the red book. That's a hymnal. Uh, uh, it's got some Bible verses in it, but I don't, I don't think it has all of these. So if, if you don't have a Bible with you, grab one of the black Bibles in the pew in front of you, and you can turn to page 1387, and we'll be almost at the very top of that page. So if you want to follow along there. In fact, uh, as you get there, stand with me uh, as we read from God's Word. This is James chapter 2. We will read verse 1 together, and then we'll cover down through, thir- through verse 13. This is God's Word. And if you let it, it will change your life. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Pray with me. Father, I pray that you would conform us into the image of your son this morning. Use your words to shape us into who you want us to be. As we look forward to communion in a little bit, we pray that we would commune not only in taking the bread and the cup together, but we would commune in fellowship with you and with each other by the way that we know you and the way that we are molded by you into your image. Be with us in this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. James wants this ragtag group of scattered believers to live their faith. Not just to believe it in their heads, but to go beyond belief into action. And he starts, he he gave us an overview in chapter one of what this faith looks like from the 50,000 foot view. Now we're going to get into the weeds of it. And he starts in the area of partiality. Verse one tells us, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The word here used for partiality is a 16-letter Greek word. Prosoprolimpsias is the word. And yes, I had to practice that a lot to be able to say it. It gives the idea of receiving someone to your face. In other words, showing favor to them. But it also has the idea of not showing favor to someone else. Now, you don't show favor to someone uh, uh, just for... In using this word, it's not just showing favor to someone because they deserve it. It's showing favor to someone even though they, they don't really deserve it. In fact, uh, uh, it's, it's taking two people that you ought to be treating the same and treating one of them better than the other. And it, it, in, in this culture, we think of partiality as something that you do. It's an action that you take. That's why this is rendered show no partiality. But in the Greek text, it doesn't say show no partiality. It says have no partiality. In other words, they thought of partiality not just as an action you do, but as the attitude with which you do it. In other words, it's not something you show, it's something you have. And uh, if you look up this word partiality, you'll find it four times in the New Testament. One of them is here. The other three are all written by Paul. Look in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, Paul is showing how God judges every person according to their works, whether they're Jews or Greeks. It doesn't matter whether they're people of the covenant 
uh, of God or whether they are outside of that covenant, whether, whether they are under the Old Testament law or not under the Old Testament law. That doesn't matter to God. He, he shows no partiality in that he will judge each and every one of us according to works. Now, when he looks at us, and we have been bought, purchased with the blood of Christ. When God's, when God's Son has put upon us His righteousness, that imputation of righteousness, that He's taken our sins upon Him and died on the cross, paying the price for our sin. When He does that, God looks at us, and the only works He sees are not the sin. The only works He sees are the works of righteousness that have been brought about in us through Christ's work. And unfortunately, for some of us, that's not going to be a whole lot of work. Unfortunately, when God burns away all the dross of our life, uh, we're going to be left with very little that stands the fire. Some of us are going to be left with a lot that stands the fire. God has done many great things in us and, and through us. And our obedience to his word, we have a whole heap of works whereby he can judge us not just to send us to heaven or hell. That's already been determined by faith in Christ. But what now? What kinds of, what kinds of things do we have to show for our life as we walk through those pearly gates? And he's talking about this fact that God is going to judge according to works. And so whoever is doing evil will be in tribulation and distress. That's verse 9. Whoever does good will receive glory and honor and peace. That's in verse 10. And then he says in chapter 2, verse 11, for God shows no partiality. Once again, the Greek says God has no partiality. He's not treating you differently than someone else just because of what ethnicity you are. He's not treating you differently from someone else just because you're really handsome, really good looking, really smart, a real nice guy. He's looking at the works of faith. Ephesians. Paul wrote, writes to the Ephesian church and he tells them toward the end of chapter 5, it's chapter 5 verse 22, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he begins to show what that submission looks like. It looks like husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church. We're going to talk about that tonight when we talk about the family. He talks about wives submitting themselves to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. We'll talk about that too. He talks about parents disciplining their children in love. And children honoring their parents. We'll talk about that as well. He talks about bond servants and masters, how bond servants are to serve their masters and how masters are not to mistreat their servants. And in all these things, he says uh, to the masters, chapter 6, verse 9 of Ephesians, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both ma- their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Do you see, do you see the picture here? Hey, you have the same master they do. And God doesn't care if you're a master or a servant. You really want justice? There's only one who's just. We could try to be just. We can do our very best and sometimes we can do very well at it. Sometimes we just mess up. But God is perfectly just and there's no partiality with him. Bond servants. Obey your masters. Masters, don't mistreat your bond servants because you both have the same master and he's not partial. He judges rightly and fairly. Colossians. 
Paul calls the church to do everything heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. Because you are serving the Lord Christ. And then comes this statement in chapter 3, verse 25. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. No matter who you are, you are going to be judged fairly by God. That is a comforting thought and a sobering thought. means you can't bribe that judge. But it also means that when you are doing right, no one else can bribe the judge against you. You see, God doesn't have partiality. He doesn't treat one of uh, uh, one group of people with kid gloves, always assuming the best out of them and treat another with uh, a very skeptical eye. He's just in all his ways. And if there's no other reason for us not to have partiality, it's that. It's that God doesn't have partiality. That's the reason that we shouldn't have partiality. That's what James is telling us in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, don't have partiality, in part because God doesn't have partiality. And, and, and uh, let, me just, let me just make this clear kind of uh, general statement of life. Okay, If you are doing something that God would not do, probably best not to do that. If you are doing something that, di- that, that disconnects from the character of God, then it's wrong. Don't do it. Okay? You know, there used to be that question, what would Jesus do? You'd see it on bracelets, WWJD, and all that kind of stuff. Um, some people some people think of that in the wrong way, but I, I, I think there's good advice there. If God is not willing to do certain things, we shouldn't either. God is not partial, neither should we be. We should pattern our behavior, pattern our actions, pattern our deeds and our words after those of God. Now, does that mean that just because God does it means we should do it? Well, he's kind of holy and righteous and pure and, and just and, and all those kinds of things. And so sometimes he's going to do stuff we can't do because he's just God. I mean, he's, he's just way beyond us, okay? But I'll tell you what, if our characters are becoming more like his character, we're headed in the right direction. And that's what James is after. He wants us to be doing the faith. Because faith isn't meant just to be something that we believe. It's meant to be lived out. Because in the living out of faith, that's how God changes us into his likeness, into his image. He's already put his image in us, but man, it is messed up. And so by living out this faith in Christ, we look more like God than we did before. And that, that is why we're still here. Because in doing that, we just bring him more and more and more glory. We tend, though, instead of following God's lead and not being partial, we tend to be partial. We tend to treat others differently. And it, sometimes it's for all kinds of different reasons. James gives the example right here in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. He gives the example of what this might look like. For if a man, he says, wearing a gold ring and fine clothing, the word is bright, like they are freshly clean, he is in a three-piece Armani suit. And he's got a great ring on his finger. And man, he is, he is, man, he is dressed to the nines. Okay? All right? He walks in. He comes into your assembly. It's the word synagogue, by the way. And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. He's in tattered rags, dirty, dingy, smelly clothing. These two guys walk in. He sets up this hypothetical situation. By the way, this sounds, this actually sounds more like experience than a fabricated story. 
It's almost like he's seen this happen before. But he says, these two guys walk in, verse 3, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. You see the situation? You got a guy in his three-piece Armani suit and you are, let's escort you to the best seat in the house, the seat of honor. Every synagogue had one. Every place where Jews met would have this place of honor. If there was a visiting rabbi or teacher who was renowned, they would sit in the place of honor. Otherwise, it would be the normal rabbi who would sit in that place. Or it would be, it would be a high official in that community with Jewish sympathies who would sit in that place. It didn't matter. You know, whoever the most respectable, highest honored person was in that society would sit in that best place. Some churches still do this. They'll have a couple of chairs back here and there'll be one chair that is reserved for the special guest of that day. In seminary, they would do that. They'd have a couple seats on the stage and it was always kind of funny, uh, um, when they do this, because you could tell who was the most honored because they would always sit in the same one of those seats. It was, there would be uh, either two or four seats, depending on how many would be up there. And, and the one immediately on the right of the pulpit. So there, they'd be behind the pulpit. There'd be two over here. The one in this spot right here would be the most honored seat. Okay. This seat would be the next most honored, usually. So if there was a special guest, they would sit here and the seminary president would sit here. And then over here, there'd be a couple of other folks, maybe one who was reading scripture, maybe one who was leading the music during that service or whatever it might happen to be, okay? So they escort him to the best place. You're the rich guy. You've got the nice suit. You, you are dressed to the nines. You are, you are the most honored guest. You sit right here. This is, this is the seat for you. But then they come to this poor guy and you say, oh, I guess we got room back there if you want to stand along the wall. Or even worse, here, sit at my feet. You just kind of sit by me. That's a place of servants, by the way. Almost picture this would happen not only just in a church service, but at a meal. And that day, you didn't sit at a table with chairs. You laid at the table. Sometimes there would be some kind of like padded mattress type thing on the floor. Sometimes it would just be a couple of blankets or something along those lines sprawled out. But they would sprawl out in three, okay? So if you're looking into it, there would be two on this side, on the sides, and one like this. So it'd make a, a U shape. And servants could come in and, and serve the food or whatever. There'd be place settings around, and you'd lay at the table, so to speak, You'd lay there on your left side with your left hand kind of propping you up and you're eating with your right hand. There the honored place would be immediately to the right of the host. Whoever was hosting, whoever was leading this meal, uh, uh, you would sit right by them. So you could just kind of lean back into their chest and talk to them. That was the honored place. Now can you imagine at a meal, you're the rich man. Boy, this feels nice. They are laying out the red carpet for you. They are giving you everything. You've got your best. You got the best of the food. Everything. It's all for you. Feel pretty good, right? Imagine you're the poor guy. Here, you're not even invited to the table. You stand over there. Or you can sit by my feet. How many of you want to sit by somebody else's feet? No, you don't. I don't want to sit by your feet, Mr. Here. 
It's okay. You don't want to sip out mine either. It's all right. Y'all, you, do you see the partiality at work here? It's a distinction, isn't it? And in fact, that's what he says. Verse four. Have you not then? Okay, let's just say all this happened. Let's just say hypothetically, all this happens. And I'm sure he's pointing out something that's happened multiple times in their midst. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You know what he's telling them? He's telling them, hey, you shouldn't be partial because partiality makes us evil judges. This word thoughts here is not just thoughts, it's reasonings. Partiality makes us evil judges. When we're partial towards someone and against somebody else, we are misjudging the value of those two individuals. In fact, we're making a judgment that counteracts God's judgment. You might think of this as two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, we are rejecting the one that God chooses. Uh, so, so we reject the one that God says, I've chosen them. Verse 5, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Hasn't he chosen these poor folks, these folks that have nothing, that are destitute, but are trusting in him? Because remember, this isn't just rich or poor. Oftentimes, the ones who trust in Christ are poor because they got nothing else to trust in. Hasn't God given them the kingdom? The implication is they're not just poor, but they're poor in spirit. And what did Jesus say about the poor in spirit? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Didn't God choose them? Beginning of verse six, but you dishonor them. You have dishonored the poor man. See, God chose them, but you reject them. Now, I don't, I don't know. I don't know about you. I think it's pretty clear. If God says one thing, my judgment probably should agree with his. Are we, is that a fair statement? If God has chosen these individuals to give the kingdom of heaven, how can I reject them? I don't have the right. Not only do we uh, reject the one that God chooses, we also choose the one that God rejects. So same coin, this is the reverse side. Not only do we reject the one that God has chosen, we're choosing the one that God has rejected. Now again, this isn't just about rich and poor. This is about the fact that, that these individuals, oftentimes poor, are the ones who are willing to put trust in Christ, but these individuals who are oftentimes the rich are the ones who are not trusting in Christ, but are trusting in their possessions. They're trusting in their own abilities. They're trusting in what they can do. They're trusting in other things. They're trusting in themselves and not in Christ. That's why they're rejected by God. And he, he makes this clear. Continue in verse six. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? So the poor guy that you rejected is the one that's been promised the kingdom. The rich guy that you accept is the one that has rejected God and therefore God has rejected him. God commanded against this kind of oppression. Leviticus 19.15 says, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. And yet here they go breaking it. Instead of living by this standard, they intentionally oppress those who do not have. I heard a statistic the other day that in 1800, it's estimated that about 91 
91% of the world lived in abject poverty. I don't know how true this was in Jesus's day, but I imagine it was a pretty high percentage. You know what the percentage is today? It's under 11% today. What a difference a couple hundred years makes, huh? But I imagine in Jesus's day, it was still pretty high, definitely higher than it is today. You were either really rich or you were really poor. And the really rich often got richer by oppressing the poor. They would make them sell their lands to them. We talked about this in Nehemiah. It happened in Nehemiah's day too. Uh, uh, you can't afford to pay the rent. There's a famine going on. You don't have enough harvest to pay for the bill. So we are going to possess your land and you're going to have to rent it from us and plant your crops on the land that we now own. And then we're going to take a pretty substantial amount of penalty of interest, of, of, of usury from you in order to work our land. And it becomes a never-ending cycle of further and further and further into debt. And then you can't pay. We take you to court. We make you become slaves. This just gets worse and worse and worse for the poor. Oh, you got to pay your taxes. You got to pay your taxes to Caesar. You got to pay your taxes to the local officials. You got to pay your taxes because the tax man is going to take some for himself too. So you got to pay extra taxes to support the tax man. Because if you don't pay enough, he's going to put you in prison because you ain't paying taxes to Rome. And then you come to the temple to worship God. You got to pay those taxes. You got to pay exorbitant rates for all the stuff that you buy to, to offer your sacrifices. It's a system that is rigged. Paul, interestingly enough, would be the perpetrator of this kind of action. Going in, seizing Christians, committing them to prison, charging them with all sorts of crimes that they really weren't committing. One letter was written uh, in, in the early days of the Christian church, accused the Christian church of eating babies. They said that they would, they, see, Christians would adopt babies. Somebody didn't want a baby, they'd throw them out in the trash. Christians would come along and adopt that baby. They would take care of that baby. They would raise that baby up because that's what, that's what people who are living by faith actually do. That's faith and work, Right? And so they would take care of these babies. So what they said, what, what people in the community thought was, well, these Christians are getting these babies and then they're cooking them into their bread and eating them in their love feast, which is what they call communion. Total, total lie. That's, that's what people were saying about Christians. You see, and then somebody that would be spreading that kind of stuff would walk into a Christian assembly with a three-piece Armani suit and a gold ring and, oh, let's give you the best seat in the house. Doesn't really dive, does it? No, it doesn't. And then they'd not they'd slander, they blaspheme God. By the way, do you, go, pull back up James two seven. James, yeah, we we got James putting verses from James up on the thing. Are they not the ones who blaspheme you? No. Are they not the ones who blaspheme my name, the honorable name by which you are called? You see, God so God sees this not as them attacking you. He sees it as them attacking him. Because as you've done to the least of these, so you've done also to me. I think, I think we got our priorities backwards, huh? Partiality makes us evil judges. They make us completely evil. Judging right as wrong and wrong as right. When we show partiality, that's not in line with Scripture at all. In fact... Not only does it make us evil judges, it makes us lawbreakers. It makes us lawbreakers. 
Now, God's command is pretty clear. Chapter 2, verse 8, James says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. It's another hypothetical. If you're really doing what God has commanded, this comes from Leviticus 19 too. 19 uh, verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? It's interesting how he pulls from Leviticus, a book that we never read, but yet he finds in it the, the, the way to live faith. I heard someone say the other day, the answers to our future are found in our past. Maybe we ought to spend a little more time in Leviticus. We're commanded to love our neighbors. That's God's command. That's the law. In fact, when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? He goes to Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then he says, the second one is like it. He wasn't even asked for two. He said, you know what? Here's the greatest law, but you know, there's another one that's just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. We are commanded to love our neighbors. It's not optional. It's not part of that ceremonial law that that we recognize that Christ fulfilled for us so we don't have to worry about. You know, the sacrifices and the things like that that they were commanded to do, Christ fulfilled every sacrifice on the cross. So we don't have to worry about that. We don't have to worry about bringing offerings. Please do not bring your goats in here to be slaughtered and to be offered up. We don't have a place for them, okay? Christ has paid it all, all right? But there are some aspects of the law that God calls us not because they are ceremonial, but because they are ethical. This is one. Love your neighbor. It's the command of God. James is going to, he's building a logical argument here. He says, all right, this is the command of God. Now, verse 9. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. In other words, he says, if you show partiality, you're not fulfilling the law. He said, well, wait a minute. How am I not fulfilling the law? I mean, that's just showing partiality. That's not just having a little bit of partiality. That's not really breaking the law. There's no law that says thou shalt not have partiality. Right. But he says, oh, no, 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 no. You've broken the law. Verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. What he's really saying is when we break a law, we break the whole law. So God's commanded, love your neighbors. But when we show partiality, we're breaking the law. And when you break a law, you break the whole law. I wish I could just say, but y'all don't do that, so we don't have to worry about that. You know, I I tell some folks, someone told me earlier today, I thought about leaving because I see you're preaching about me this morning from the book of James. And I said, trust me, it hits me before it hits you. Because I have a tendency to show partiality. Sometimes I can be partial. Sometimes I can treat people unfairly. And when I'm doing that, I'm not loving my neighbor as I love myself. I'm breaking the law when I do that. You see, here's the thing. You can't break... We, we saw this last summer. Mostly peaceful protests. And, and, and buildings are on fire right behind the reporter. Well, it might be mostly peaceful. But things are on fire. I, I don't think you could call it peaceful. It kind of is peaceful or it's not, right? 
I see the same thing happening on the other side of the aisle with January 6th. It was mostly peaceful people protesting at the Capitol. Well, it may have been mostly peaceful until it wasn't. You see, it's all one or the other. You can't have it both ways. You can't. It's either, it's either they're both bad or they're both good because they're both the same thing. And that's what this partiality is talking about. He's saying you can't treat one group of people one way and one group of people another way just because you want to. Just because you think this one will give you favors that this one can't. Or just because this one agrees with your certain perspective on things and this one doesn't. He can't do that. Because when you show partiality, you're breaking God's law to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And when you break a law, you break the whole law. If 3% of what I do is kill people, I'm not mostly not a murderer. I'm a murderer, right? What if it's only 0.3%? I'm still a murderer. You get my point? I think I made my point clear, have I? Good. So what now? Where do we go from here? What? Okay, we're not supposed to be partial. We got that. But I've said before, if you don't replace something with something else that's good, something worse will take its place. If you try to take out a tree from your yard, but you don't backfill the hole, it's just going to get bigger. Or it's going to be a nice place for something to move in. Something that you necessarily don't want in your yard, right? We have some mole holes. Mole holes. Y'all know that is. Right? A mole comes in, digs a little hole. Chipmunk or something like that digs a hole. And then, and then, after the mole leaves, goes, digs another hole, that hole's still there. What happens? Something else moves in. Usually not just a chipmunk or a mole. See, if you really want to get rid of something bad, you gotta, you gotta find something good to put in its place. And living your faith isn't just about excluding the wrong. It's about getting to the right. It's about doing what's right, what's in accordance with God's word, what's in accordance with his will. So instead of partiality, what? Instead of having partiality, what should we do? We should have mercy. You see, verse, verse 12, so speak and so act as though who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Now, we think of liberty, we think of freedom from judgment, but that's not liberty. The law that he's talking about here isn't just the Old Testament Torah with all of its commandments. It's not just the, the, the multiple, multiple volumes of rules and decrees and regulations that Pharisees added to the Torah. It's not you can't press a button, but you can pull a string. It's not that kind of stuff. It's not exactly what this looks like or what it doesn't look like in these particular circumstances. The law of liberty that he's talking about is the Torah, is the law of God, but it's the law of God through Christ. Christ has fulfilled the law. And because he fulfilled the law, we can be made free to fulfill the law too. Not because of our goodness, but because of his, him working in us. And so this law of liberty, it's a law by which we are judged, but it's a law that frees us to serve God, to love him, to live our faith. And so he says, for judgment is without mercy to those, to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
you might be a lawbreaker because of partiality, stop being partial and start being merciful. Now, does that mean that you don't take care of rich people who come in? Not at all. Be nice to them. Be kind to them. That's, that's well within reason. He's not saying don't be kind to anybody. He's saying don't, don't just be kind to certain bodies. Have mercy on all. I, I seem to remember Jesus saying something about this. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. You see, when we demonstrate mercy, you know what we're doing? We're doing what God does. See, God isn't partial. He doesn't have partiality. He has mercy. And so when we are merciful, we're just acting like daddy. So we're about to take communion. And communion, one of the meanings of the word is, is uh, this idea of communing together. We're communing with God. Yeah, we eat a little bit. We drink a little bit. It's not a full meal, but it's not supposed to be. It's just a taste. But it's a time for us to commune with God. But it's also a time for us to commune with each other. And I fear that sometimes uh, uh, we don't commune with each other in part because of bad attitudes. Maybe we've made evil judgments about others. Maybe we've, maybe we've just been partial toward certain kinds of people. So this morning, I want to give us a chance to turn from partiality to mercy. As, as we prepare our hearts to receive the elements of communion, I want you to pray with me. I'm going to guide us in prayer. And ask God to help us stop being partial. Stop having an attitude of partiality and instead have an attitude of mercy. Pray with me. Father, when we look at your character and we see your justice, your holiness, your mercy, we recognize that you are altogether different from us. You are, well, to put it in layman's terms, you're one of a kind. There is none here who could be like you. We are all so far from you. We are all so far below you, all so far away from your character. Our sinful natures drive us as far as possible from you. But even when we go, the psalmist says, to the heights of mountains or to the depths of seas, even there you are with us. We cannot escape your presence. And God, no matter how evil we can be sometimes, no matter how much we turn away from you, you still are merciful. You still offer salvation to any who would turn to you. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And God, you've worked within us through your Holy Spirit, that, that call to submit to you, that, that conviction that we are away from you and that we need a Savior, that we are sinners who have nothing apart from you. Father, I pray for anyone that may not have come to that place. Maybe, maybe someone here has played with it. They've, they've done the religion game. They've been to church all their life or maybe for the last few years. And God, it's been fake. And I pray that your spirit would call to them and that they would respond in obedient, childlike faith. God, for those of us who do trust you, would you root out the partiality? Would you get rid of the attitude that certain ones are to be favored above others? Would you help us realize that you value us not because of our achievements or our accomplishments or our capabilities, but because you made us. You love us because we're your creatures and that your love went so far beyond what any of us could possibly go. Your love went to the point of dying and rising again to purchase our salvation. 
So God, when we look at that other person, tattered, broken, pressed, poor, needy, down on his luck, to the end of her rope, I pray that we not just see the tatteredness and the brokenness, but we'd see your image and your love for them and that we would respond not with partiality, but with mercy. Help us love our neighbors as ourselves. Father, if we have been partial against someone, I pray that you would forgive us of that sin. Any sin that has separated us from you and from others, we pray that you would forgive us of those sins. So that when we take this communion, it's not just drinking a cup and eating a little cracker, but it truly is a taste of things to come. A reminder of what you've done for us and for them too. Father, let us truly commune this morning. Forgive us of everywhere we fail you. Make our hearts pure, that we may live our faith without partiality. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.